Hello, I'm Jenny Viers, Public Sector Events Director at Local Government Chronicle. Welcome to our brand new investment podcast. Each episode will be brought to you straight after one of our Local Government Investment events. The podcast will wrap up some of the learnings from the event and feature interviews with key industry experts and clips from sessions recorded at the event. This episode was recorded at the LGC Pension Insights Symposium, which was held in Stratford-upon-Avon between the 11th and 12th of July. Hosted by editor of LGC Nick Golding, the episode will explore two key themes which were discussed on stage by our speaking panel during the event. The LGC Pension Insights Symposium 2019 was sponsored by PIMCO, one of the world's premier fixed income investment managers. Find out more at pimco.co.uk. Welcome to this pioneering LGC investment podcast. We're, uh, we're in Stratford and Avon, Sundrenn Stratford and Avon, where the LGC Pension Insights Symposium has been held over the past two days. And uh, what a two days it's been. So, the first time we've ever done this um, investment podcast, um, I'm very pleased to be joined by two special guests. We've got Michael Marshall, who's the Director of Responsible Investment for LGPS Central and Denise Legal, who's chair of the Brunel Pension Partnership. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank um, you. We're, we're discussing two issues today. We're talking about ESG, and then we'll be also be discussing about account, accountability between pools and pension funds. Um, we've been discussing this, m- this morning in two of our sessions. M- Michael, we've been discussing ESG. Just can you remind us what ESG is, please? Sure. Uh, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And what that means is um, there are certain characteristics of companies or other investments that you might choose to make that are associated with the environment, with society or with corporate governance issues. And good management of ESG factors simply means the integration of those factors, the identification of them, the the measurement of them, and the management of them into your investment process. And that's something which uh, we seek to do at LGPS Central, and I'm sure Brunel do much the same. And how core is this to the, the, the values of the LGPS these days? I think it's absolutely core. Um, the statutory guidance that the funds, the local authority funds, work under says that if you think there are ESG factors that are financially material, then you should be uh, including them in your investment process. And that's how we've decided to build out our investment process at LGPS Central, because what we need to do is to deliver for our partner funds. And they've come to us and said that they take ESG very seriously. And therefore, we've chosen to integrate it across all of the investment mandates that we have. So I would say, yes, it is core. And do your various member funds have slightly different policies on this and different priorities? We're very fortunate that there's a lot of overlap in the investment strategy statements of our underlying funds. And that starts at their investment beliefs. So they are aligned on the fact that responsible investment can enhance long-term risk-adjusted returns. They're aligned on the fact that an engagement strategy is preferred to a divestment strategy, both for fiduciary reasons and also for societal outcomes. And so using that as a basis, we've been able to build a framework which is unified. And we don't just do that and then we'll see them next year and report on what we did. We touch in regularly with our clients. And there's a a specific working group where we can take feedback from our clients to make sure we're delivering for them. There are slightly different areas of priority 
in terms of themes that they might want us to focus on in our engagement work. And we've chosen to look at four themes uh, in the year ahead, uh, climate change, single-use plastics, tax and transparency, and technology and disruptive industries. And so we're able to liaise with clients so that what we're doing is focusing on themes that matter to them. And Denise, what's, what's your experience of ESG in Brunel? And how, how do you... How core is it to what you do? Well, um, uh, given that the Environment Agency is one of our uh, clients, um, it's at the heart of everything we do. And indeed, our strapline is uh, forging better futures by investing for a world that's worth living in. And um, this is very much driven by um, our underlying funds. I have to admit that initially, when I first joined Brunel, they were not at the same point in the journey. But it's quite remarkable how quickly... They've uh, come on board, and now everyone is, has this as a as a top priority. They want to be invested. Not we don't invest on an ethical basis, but um, certainly on a financial sustainability and resilience basis. Is that is what they want us to do, and that's what that's a part of our mandates. Searches. Uh, there's a lot of um, criteria in there that checks whether or not it's a tick box a ticking exercise, or whether um, our fund managers are truly. Um, uh, having that as part of their own investment processes, and that's really important to us. Do, do the two of you do, you, do you feel a certain power that you, you, can, you can diminish the harmful things being done to the world and make the world a better place? Absolutely. And I think that's gained momentum in the last, I'm sure you'll agree with me that this has really changed in the last few years. Two years ago, um, if we look at the Prince of Wales' A4S, uh, group um, that has, you know, we had had a really great opportunity in pooling to influence how fund managers approach ESG and um, and behave like responsible investors. If you mean power in the sense that we can achieve change either at companies uh, that we invest in or investment managers that you invest through, then I'd completely agree with Denise that uh, that has uh, been achieved. Um, and it's it's not something that could be done in isolation. So I don't think Brunel could have brought about that by themselves. I don't think we're large enough or influential enough to have brought it about by ourselves. So it's really important to work together, both on the corporate side, engaging directly with companies, and uh, in terms of influencing the industry at large. I just want to listen to some of the highlights for this, of the session now. This clip was recorded on Friday the 12th of July and featured Karen Shackleton, Senior Advisor, MJ Hudson Allenbridge and founder of Pensions for Purpose. So the spectrum of capital goes from, I've put columns on one to eight. On the left hand side is traditional in investing as it used to be sort of 15 years, 15, 20 years ago, um, when the goals were purely financial and no consideration was taken of environmental or social or governance issues. Um, it was just the focus was entirely uh, financial. If you go right across to the other side of the spectrum, you reach philanthropy. Now, with philanthropy, the emphasis there is much more around what your money is being used to achieve. So it's much more about the intentionality and the purpose of the investment. And if you go right to the, the far side, the, the eighth column, the investor is actually willing to sacrifice all their capital in the interests of achieving their impact goal. And the spectrum of capital goes right from one end to the other. So if you move to um, responsible investment, the second column, I would say that's probably where most of you are today. 
So responsible investors do take into account uh, environmental, social and governance um, risks and opportunities in terms of deciding what to invest in. But the focus is purely on getting a financial risk-adjusted return. That is why you are looking at those considerations. When you move to column three, sustainable investing, that is quite an important step change because now, rather than just saying, I'm going to take these considerations into account in my investment process, now you're starting to say, actually, I want to impose some investor beliefs on top of my decision making because I believe that climate change is something that we should be uh, focusing on in our portfolio. Um, and I'm prepared to perhaps narrow my universe of opportunities in order to uh, achieve my investor beliefs. But the financial return that you get on your portfolio still remains the same as in column two. You're still trying to maximize the risk-adjusted return. Then when you move to columns four and five, now you're starting to put a little bit more emphasis on the purpose, the impact of your investments. And um, here, it's more about saying, I intentionally want to try and achieve a positive impact in my portfolio. Uh, but I still want to try and achieve a financial risk-adjusted return that is competitive with non-impactful investments. But clearly, again, you're narrowing down the universe of opportunities. The difference between columns four and five is that when you move to column five, um, you start to uh, sacrifice some, um, something like liquidity, for example. Perhaps you, you're prepared to take a little bit more risk by tying up your capital for longer or perhaps you're prepared to tolerate a little bit of volatility in the interim, but over the long term, you're still going to achieve a market rate risk-adjusted return. And I would argue that for a pension fund, it is acceptable to go as far as column five on the spectrum of capital. Some people argue that you could even go to column six. I mean, perhaps that's something that we can talk about uh, another time, but um, that's where you do say, I'm prepared to accept a little bit of a sacrifice in return in my portfolio. And then you reach philanthropy, which very clearly is not appropriate for a pension fund who has fiduciary responsibilities. So what we're going to be focusing on today is really around column two. We might touch on column three, but we're talking about how do we as um, investors become responsible? How can we take into account environmental, social and governance risks? The, there's a question about the evidence base, which is gaining some, oh. some, some likes. Uh, Karen, do you want to address that one? Yeah, I mean, there's, there are um, people out there that have done some research, academics and managers. I mean, the most recent one I've seen was by Hermes, and they showed, I mean, we're talking about basis point benefits, but there were positive um, returns attributable to E, S and G, but the most significant one was in governance that that added, and I can't now offhand remember the exact numbers. I think it was about 60 basis points, something like that, but don't quote me on that. Um, uh, but you know, they had certainly shown that over the past 10 years, um, uh, looking at the companies that had the best ESG ratings compared with companies with the lowest ESG ratings and then comparing the performance, over time, the top quartile uh, ESG rated 
companies outperformed on uh, on each of the. They had done it for each individual uh, E, S, and G, but G was was adding the most value. So that, that's kind of common sense that companies that have the best um, governance structures uh, will will perform the best. But uh, good to see that in black and white. Now, in that session that we had this morning, we heard um, Carol Shackle- Karen Shackleton of um, Pensions for Purpose, and she was talking about the. the Five, um, a spectrum of five different levels um, of ESG. Would you, you care to explain that a little bit more? Might, perhaps, perhaps all for you, Michael. Sure. Um, it's a, um, a commonly used diagram to explain um, the difference between uh, philanthropy on one end of the diagram, where an investment return is of no consideration. The only consideration for the philanthropist is is to create some sort of societal impact that aligns with his or her mission. And what's described as traditional investment management on the left-hand side, where investment returns are the only thing that's considered and one's uh, impact on on the environment or society are, are of zero consideration. And as you say, there are five levels um, and but there are eight columns, so some of those levels themselves have a spectrum. Um, most uh, investors in the LGPS, I would um, venture to say, are responsible investors, which is along from traditional investment management. And what we're seeking to do is to use information signals about ESG factors and integrate that into our investment process so that we, we uh, believe we're able to make stronger uh, and more sustainable risk-adjusted returns over the long term, not just in the way you buy and sell stocks or the way you appoint uh, fund managers or, or, or choose to unappoint uh, fund managers, uh, but also in the way you steward your assets. So the uh, importance of engagement uh, and shareholder voting, for example, uh, is very influential in a responsible investment approach. And um, when I say that some of the five levels on this diagram have uh, have a spectrum within uh, within the level, uh, impact investing could be a good example where within impact investing, it is possible to achieve an impact, a positive impact on society or the environment um, without sacrificing financial returns, which perhaps is something that's underappreciated uh, in the industry. But you could, if you chose, and if it aligned with your mission and your investment beliefs and your purpose as an organization, uh, you could choose to sacrifice some return in order to achieve greater impact. So it, it's it's a diagram that explains the spectrum of approaches, um, but I would I would suggest that most people are in the, the bucket of responsible investors. And Denise, do you think there is a conflict between returns and the level of the, the extent to which you're following ESG objectives? Uh, well, what what um, what we just heard from Michael um, partially answers that question, um, and I think increasingly the evidence, uh, the academic evidence, is that if you invest in businesses that are um, that that are strong on um, ESG, uh, there's increasing evidence that they're the ones that are performing better because they're resilient and they're fit for the future. Um, what we're really worried about is, um, you know, and is continuing to invest in companies that may not be around in the next 10 years. So does that mean that councils, the LGPS, it's reducing its investments in oil and gas, for instance? Uh, well, I, I think uh, that some of them have. Some of them have clearly. 
uh, but um, the important thing there is to con- to be able to continue the engagement, which uh, we know that LAPFF, the Local Authority Pension Fund Forum, does a lot of engagement with those companies, um, and that has brought about some change. Um, so, you know, we would stick to the um, the belief that uh, engagement is 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 an agent of change, and uh, if we completely disinvested, then we wouldn't have the power that we do to affect some of that change, like stopping drilling in the in the Arctic, for example, by Shell. So, so you, you might still invest in Shell, for instance, but you sort of say, no, that, that is the limit. Yeah. Don't, don't drill in the, the Arctic. And, you know, could you put more and more pressure on a company like that in the future? Well, we certainly do. And I, our, our underlying funds do that through LAPFF. Um, but um, at the same time, you know, we do have some funds that would choose, would preferably not choose and, and would opt for um, carbon, low carbon strategies, which we offer. Um, as as a way of of, um, of of disinvesting investing in in those with a tilt strategy. So, what information do pools need um, from from asset managers um, to make a success of this? When it comes to active managers, uh, what we're looking for is um, is are they making good on the um, the investment process that they pitched when they pitched for our business. And in particular, are they doing what they said they intended to do with respect to the integration of ESG in that process and engagement? And is that working? And so we're looking for um, a set of, uh, some of the information we look for is consistent across fund managers, and some is bespoke because different fund managers have been appointed because they have a differentiated style. And so to us, it doesn't make sense to ask every fund manager for exactly the, pe- the, same, the same metric. And then we also, we don't, just rely on self-reported information from the fund managers. We also have tools of our own that allow us to hold them to account. So, for example, some fund managers rely on proprietary uh, ESG scores or, or ratings that allows them either um, to, um, to, con- to construct the portfolio, to have greater or lesser conviction in a particular stock given ESG risk and risk management, or, um, or, to, or to, um, to say that that's not in their, their best ideas at the moment or whatever. And if they use those kinds of ratings, we'd like to see that on a regular basis from the fund manager. But if, if a manager doesn't use a particular scoring system, because that doesn't apply to their style or strategy, then we don't have to see that. But we do have our own way of viewing um, scores that, that we have uh, in-house so that if a, if a fund manager is using their own scores and saying, look, aren't we so great at ESG, we're achieving 90% of the benchmarks, 50%, we could actually say, well, we take a differentiated view on five of those companies. Can you talk me through how you generated that score? We also um, take information on engagement. So we ask for a list of companies that have been engaged with during the quarter in review, what the subject was and what the outcomes were and whether that affected uh, the, the fund manager's view on the stock. Uh, and we um, we ask for um, more detailed information than just ratings when it comes to new positions in the portfolio. Um, so we are asking for quite a lot, but we think that's perfectly reasonable. It's very similar with us, actually, a very similar process. We have our own detailed uh, questionnaires that we, we ask of our, of our fund managers um, uh, to determine whether they're paying lip service to the process or whether it's really integrated. And, um, and similarly, the engagement piece is, is very important. I'm t- keen to turn our conversation now to accountability. Um, let's just hear a few highlights from the session that we had this morning. This clip was captured on Friday the 12th of July. 
Chaired by Denise Legal, the session featured Jill Davis, Assistant Director, Investments and Finance, West Midlands Pension Fund, Eric Lambert, Independent Investment Advisor, and Mike O'Donnell, Chief Executive of the London Civ. So Jill, it's not a tricky question at all. Is LGPS Central meeting your expectations? So I've got the client relations person sitting right in front of me. Oh, well, no pressure then. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) So I think we're on a journey. Um, You know, I think it's it's hard from both sides. I think things are progressing a lot better than they were, um, being completely open and frank about it. So, yes, I think we are getting further along on that journey, and I think they are starting to deliver to meet our expectations there's further to go, and I think they would acknowledge that. And I think Mike Weston was up here yesterday, yeah. probably saying something similar. Um, but, you know, I have to hold our hands up as well. You know, as I put up, there's an awful lot of oversight of them too. As clients, we probably aren't the most coordinated bunch. And, I, you know, I think that's true across some of, some of the pools. We're, you know, we're starting in very different positions with our asset allocation, with our investment strategy. And actually, you know, it's quite hard getting some of those conversations going and and coming to a common point of view as to how we want to move forwards. So to be fair to the pool companies, they're probably getting some quite different mixed messages from clients as well. So we're not explicit. Um, So, you know, you might want to ask them about whether we're we're delivering on our side. Mm. Um, So I think it's a fair two-way conversation. We'll take the one that says, how many pools in 2030? I can answer that, Denise. (laughs) 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 Okay, Um, Eric. I think probably, certainly no more than three. No more than three? Yeah, yeah. Probably less. I'll I'll supplement that with another question, Eric. Um, And what will they look like? Will they just be asset pools or will they be holistically managed as is LPP? Okay, interesting. Full balance sheet, closer to fiduciary management kind of mandate. Um, I think they'd aspire to that, whether the funds will concede that. I'm not sure, Denise. I think they'd want that. Yes, I think that's probably the direction of travel. So then yeah. does that mean we're moving for, for complete separation and a bit yeah. like the Canadian model or the Australian yes. model? Yes. yes, But do we have to wait till 2030 to find out Oh, no, out sorry. I think, I think it'll start well before that. Yeah. yeah. And, I know, and I know we've talked about this, but you know, I, we're not setting the pools up to compete, but they will be compared just as the AP funds in Sweden were, and there will be rationalization. And, and the so-called more successful ones will, will s- sustain and persist and the so-called less successful ones, on whatever metric, will, will probably... <laughs> well, go on. What metric would well, you use? Well, that's, that, that's um, from my perspective, it has to be about the net returns. I mean, one would hope that uh, under Boris, what, what we might see is uh, the minister that's currently at MHCLG. Um, he will probably, I suspect, be moved up the scale in government. Um, one can hope that he might then take with him some of the um, uh, sort of uh, insights that he's gained while he's been uh, our minister. So one might hope that, that Boris might be a bit more accommodating. Corbyn, who, who knows? And I, I don't know, Hunt, I'm afraid. I'm not, you know. Right. It's not okay. going to be top of their agenda anyway, is it? <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> for the next few months. Mike. Uh, no, no political views implied in this, but I think 
life could be a bit more interesting under Corbyn because I think some of the options around uh, so, sort of uh, sovereign wealth fund, uh, UK infrastructure fund might be more attractive to a, uh, an incoming uh, Labour government. I'm not saying how likely that is or isn't. Um, I, I would agree with Jill. I think on Boris and Hunt, probably, probably not going to register. I'm going to ask each of you to sum up what you think is the most important driver as main t- of maintaining really good accountability between the funds and the pools. I'll start with you, Eric. Oh. <laughs> um, well, I, I think they have to deliver what it is people think they were set up to deliver. Cost savings, yes. Net return, yes. Some people throw in risk adjusted. Please don't start me on that. That's just complete nonsense again. Um, nobody puts an actual discount rate that's risk adjusted in some way. It's return. We're focused on return. Risk is there, and obviously you don't want to have maximise it. But so just delivering what they believe they're delivering to the clients and what the client has felt they're buying. That's that's the most important thing. Mike, I think it's uh, principally about. Sort of what Eric said, but I put it slightly differently. Having a um, sort of a, a, a very clear, shared understanding of where we're trying to get to and what we're trying to deliver, and that's that, you know that that is not just about picking manager X or it's not about performance on manager X. It's about the overall strategic uh, endeavour and 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 how we make sure that you know over the next five plus years that we are delivering and have a range of products uh, that gives, uh, gives the sorts of returns we need that, that, that the borrowers are looking for in, a, in a line with their, uh, their asset allocation strategies. Jill? So I guess in addition to those two, rather than mm-hmm. repeating them, but openness and transparency I think is, is absolutely key. Um, and also a, a level of mutual respect and understanding. Very good. You know, otherwise, we can't move forward. So, Denise, can you talk about the ways that funds hold um, pools to accounts, please? Um, well, at Brunel, um, our, we have a client group, and that is effectively officers from each of the underlying funds, and they meet on a regular basis, monthly, I think it is. Um, and um, and we go through the whole business process where we are against our business plan and what's been agreed. And, you know, there may be some... Um, uh, we've had, you know, several shareholder reserve matters that have had to be discussed and worked through, and um, and uh, we're currently undergoing a governance review and a, st- a strategy review as well, um, because we've recognized that two years down the line, we look very different than we did at the outset or that we thought we would look like. So um, we've had to revise our business plan to bring it up to date. And, um, and we're working through with that, with that client group and the legal teams of each of our funds to look at things like reserve matters. Do we have too many of them? Um, how can we better align our governance structure? So it's, it's, an, it's an evolution. Nothing has stood still uh, because we've progressed at such a rapid rate and grown so quickly. So from time to time, that relationship, we have to say to our clients, we need to slow down a little bit now and pause because we need to consolidate what we're doing. Otherwise, we put ourselves at risk in our control environment, um, which obviously is very important to the FCA. So, um, you know, it's a very, very strong dialogue that's ongoing on an almost daily basis, really. Can can you just expand a little bit more on the the reason for doing this governance review? Is it the fact that your your member funds 
feel a bit disenfranchised and they want more control? Or is it more of a recognition that actually the control lies elsewhere now? Um, I think I think it's a little bit of both. Um, it's it's a negotiation in a sense, but um, what we what what is difficult for um, some of us to understand, and even uh, even us at the company level, uh, we have to clearly distinguish that role of being an FCA re- regulated company from being an LGPS fund. It's very different. We have to we have to behave under FCA rules. And so if our clients are seen to be driving too much of the governance of the of the company, that that flies against the rules of the FCA. So it's a balancing act and we want our clients to feel that they're very much part of of, of our team, but we have to take accountability for the running of the company. And that has to be very, very clear. Um, in terms of reviewing the um, the shareholder agreements and the governance review, it's just that you know when that was set up, we didn't really know what we were setting up because it was a bit of a hybrid, you know, bringing together an investment management company with local government. You know, it's not something that had been done before. So we drafted what we thought was the best, uh, what we could anticipate in the best manner. But uh, as it has evolved. We've we've come to realize, you know, the, the risks, the transition risks, for example, as an example, we knew that that was a major risk, but we didn't quite have the deep understanding of how that would look like in the current environment, because we are in a different environment today than we were two or three years ago. Um, Michael, is your experience similar at LGPS Central? It is similar. We have a similar um, governance structure. Our, our main governance committees, where we're able to interact with our shareholders and our clients, who are one and the same, but they have different hats and they, they wear them at different times. The three committees we, we liaise with are something called the Joint Committee, the Shareholder Forum, and the Practitioners Advisory Forum. And from my perspective, in terms of responsible investment and engagement, um, the main way that I'm able to take on input from our clients is through Uh, a subgroup of the Practitioners Advisory Forum, which is called the RI Working Group. And that's been a really, really useful way to get a steer from our clients as to what they'd like to see in an RI program. Um, So that helps with the setting up of of our framework, uh, but it also helps um, steer us as we deliver against that framework and implement our strategy. Um, Can we explain some of the different elements here? Because we've got things like the, the shareholder committee, the company boards, the client oversight groups, we might have service level agreements. How do these all um, work to create a climate of accountability, Denise? Right. Well, um, every pool will be, have slight variations on that. So um, in our case, we have the client group, which is officers and um, mainly officers. And they, it is their responsibility to feed through any information that comes from the pool to the uh, local committees. So that's, that's that interaction. And we have what we call uh, the Brunel Oversight Board, which are mainly elected people or delegated um, Section 151 officers. And uh, that is not a decision-making body. That is an advisory body. And uh, we meet to discuss progress um, uh, of, the, of the pool. And we, we, we meet, um, I think it's every three, two or three months. And, um, and that one is the one that um, you know, is advisory. And quite separately, we have a shareholder group because um, they're not necessarily the same people as, as, as the, um, 
the Brunel Oversight Board. They may be different people. Sometimes they're the same person. Uh, and that is very much the, the group that has to deal with any um, special reserve matters and any, any changes that we may wish to, to make to uh, the agreed plans. Um, Denise, you're, you're a former councillor, a prominent yes. councillor. How central are councillors to accountability? Well, the way we're structured, um, the uh, th- that's that's where it all lies. I mean, the the fundamental um, uh, accountability of the of the underlying funds remains with the administrating authorities, and so that tends to be um, elected members who are appointed to those committees. And um, I don't see anything changing in that respect in the very near future. But we heard at this session, this last session that we had that by um, 2030, the panelists felt that um, that might not be the case anymore and that we might have a complete separation, uh, as they do in Canada and Australia, of the LGPS. So just can you explain that that separation a little bit more? So, Well, this is now, I'm not speaking for Brunel. This is my own personal opinion and, and view. I find it a bit odd the way we're structured now, and the initial intention uh, of the government was to do a full merger of, of the funds, um, and that met with a lot of resistance, um, as we, we all know. Um, however, what this has created to me is not optimizing asset liability management, because on one hand, you've got all the assets being pooled, and the liabilities are very granular, and um, and so... The, that whole process has to be a full circle. So if you, the starting point has to be data. So if at the underlying level you don't have clean data, you're getting projections, actuarial projections and valuations that are flawed. So we, there was an example of where one fund had, had um, all their data cleansed and that reduced their liabilities by 5%. Now that's very significant because wherever your liabilities are is what informs your asset, your strategic asset allocation. So you need to be able to do that full circle. So in a sense, at the moment, we're just investing the money, but our eye is not, our eye is, is not on the liabilities, whereas our underlying clients, they're looking at the, the whole picture. And so to me, that is not an optimal model. The one that's the closest to the optimal model is probably LPP because they they take a holistic approach to it, and they do the pensions administration. So I would hope that through time that the Brunel clients might wish to explore that, to to bring together the pensions administration, the liability management under one umbrella, um, and I think then we would see hopefully contributions going down, and that's a benefit to not just the underlying authority, but ultimately our taxpayers. Well, um, Michael, what, what would happen if a pension fund decided to sit its pool wasn't really working for it. Can they just leave? I believe, that this is not my area of expertise, but I believe that there is a process through which uh, a fund could go uh, if they wanted uh, and, and, and to leave a pool. That has to be in place. It, 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 that's a theoretical possibility. And you, you cannot bind someone to something forever and say, Whatever the circumstances, however extreme, you you must stay where you are. Um, so it's it's my understanding, but I'm not an expert in this subject. Uh, that that is a theoretical possibility. What's often asked is whether uh, pools can offer services to other uh, other local authority funds. Can can pool hopping occur, or can there be specialisms? So if a, if one fund from a different pool wanted to access 
one of your products, could they do that? And I believe that the the way it's structured at the moment is that you would need the unanimous agreement of the shareholders at the fund that that had the attractive offering in order for that for that to occur. Um, so I, I think what's important to um, to focus on is that there has to be a bedding in time for this to work. There has to be a, uh, a period of stability. Um, where where we're focusing on the task at hand, which is to establish and deliver high quality investment products for our underlying clients, and I think all the questions about pool hopping and and things like that are, are for later on. Denise, it's possibly possibly unfair to ask you if any of your funds have ever sought to leave, but uh, no, I mean, but could, we, could you ever we, see that situation arising? Well, it, it was it was discussed a lot because um, because we have one fund that is slightly different from everyone else and that is the environment agency and they're under defra they're you know so they're not in a, they're not an, an, a, a local government entity and so what we did is we drafted effectively what amounts to a prenup so people are free to leave if they want to because we wanted to insure ourselves against maybe defra saying sorry we're we're bringing that pension fund into defra and you're not long no longer part of the pool but um, uh, so so there is a prenup, and it'll cost a lot of money to leave. So I think people will. We, we hope that never happens. You know, it's, it was um, a very long-term commitment that everyone made, and I think we're we're quite solid as as a group of clients. But you always have to have some sort of insurance policy in the event that that should happen. And um, but I'm, I'm reasonably confident it won't. One thing I'm keen to ask is. If pools are taking so many decisions, what is the purpose of the funds? Well, the the funds have the the purpose of the funds is to uh, determine their strategic asset allocation in order to meet their obligations. It's quite simple. They have pensions to pay now and in the future, and they need to they need to be able to ensure that they're able to fulfil those obligations. I, I certainly get that. I suppose my maybe a better way of putting it is. What is the purpose of having a fund at an individual council level or a county level? Is is, is that an optimum optimum structure? Well, as I said earlier, I don't think it's that's going to be the structure in ten years' time. I think it'll probably look a lot more like LPP, where where um, where everything's brought under one umbrella. And we've talked a lot about the accountability between individual funds and the pools. Is there a danger that the government could? Get heavily involved here, and you know the government takes decisions. It's 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 very keen for um, more investments to take place in in infrastructure, for instance. They've recognised. I mean, I've sat on the scheme advisory board from inception until just recently when I lost my seat as a councillor. Uh, so I've stepped down from the scheme advisory board, but um, it took a long time and a lot of conversation to get the treasury to understand that we cannot be mandated that flies in the face of our fiduciary responsibilities. So, And they recognize that and they accept that. However, they do have a desire to see us invest more in infrastructure, particularly UK infrastructure. Uh, they're, not, they're not going to force us. Um, and what we have said is, well, you know, we want to see the deals. You know, we, if you want us to invest in it, you, you have to show us, you have to bring us to the table because there have been infrastructure pro- projects where we haven't been invited and the, those deals have ended up with the Canadians or others. Well, I, I've really enjoyed um, this, this session of insight um, at, at the LGC Pension Insight Symposium. So can I give my big thanks to Denise and to Michael 
Um, this will hopefully be the first of many LGC investment podcasts. So join us again soon. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. So that's it. The first ever episode of the LGC Investment Podcast is complete. If you liked what you heard, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean or Spotify to have the latest episode delivered to your device after each investment event.